0: Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge.
1: I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge.
0: And we have a guest today, which uh, Liz, you're going to be talking to a little later in the podcast.
1: That's right. His name is Steve Silverman. He just put out a book called Neurotribes. It's about autism. And we're going to be talking about the role that space and science fiction uh, played in the autism community.
0: So that's coming up in a little bit. But um first off, I just wanted to share my excitement. My 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 nondescript excitement, because I can't really say anything about this, but last week I went to the set of the upcoming Ghostbusters remake. I guess you you could say remake, reboot remake. Uh uh the all female cast. The franchise of extension. Franchise extension, franchise reinterpretation. Um <laughs> And, uh, it was pretty, I mean, it was, I, I, I am now, I will just say that I am now very excited about this movie and I feel like it's going to be prime. Uh, I mean, I was excited about it before, but now I am even more so because it's, uh, it's a movie about lady scientists.
1: Go on.
0: <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, you know, ESP is a, is an actual thing also in the world of <laughs> Ghostbusters. So <laughs> there's that going for it. Um. But you know, just the the rundown of the plot, which I think is out there. I think I can talk about. I mean, uh, basically, Kristen Wiig and and Melissa McCarthy are are two uh, writing partners who you know did a did a book about the paranormal. And then Kristen Wiig decides she wants to go into to academia and and uh, pursue more respected paths of science. But then uh, ghosts happen.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case. <laughs>
0: But it just makes it made me really excited because I mean you know it's you know obviously an all female cast and Kate McKinnon is sort of the uh, the Egon stand-in which makes me incredible I am obsessed. Is she that delightful
1: with- woman from Saturday Night Live? Yes. Oh yes. my god, I love her.
0: She is wonderful. She her Justin Bieber is like one of the bright points right now in in all of this current SNL cast, which I don't largely enjoy, but I think she's one of the best people on it, if not the best person and she's amazing, and I am completely, I'm obsessed with her right now, and I'm obsessed with her as this character, um, whose name is Holtzman in this, but, uh, you know, she, she engineers all the gear, uh, it just makes me excited, like, I mean, it's, it's sort of a weird thing to, it seems like a dare, or like a dorm room conversation, like, hey, what if, what if we did Ghostbusters all with women, uh, but you know, the product is that you end up with a movie about uh, four female scientists and engineers <laughs> <laughs> who are friends and 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 do and go on missions together, which is uh, which is pretty cool. So um, well, it looks like it'll be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it sounds like our mission is to go watch this movie when it comes out and then talk about it.
0: Yeah, it's and- going to be out in the summer, and I will. Have to write something about it yeah. in between now and then. And um, uh, Kate,
1: if you're listening, you're welcome to come join us. You have some fans yes, on this podca- podcast.
0: <laughs> I, I was—I—I I told the publicist there. I was like, "I'm obsessed. I will do anything, <laughs> anything at all with Kate McKinnon, uh, and also wear her sunglasses in this movie." Anyway, uh, we can move on. I, uh, oh, did you? Oh, so so one thing I started tweeting about when I was sort of waiting around, not having anything to do, was was uh, movies that uh, have the logo so this is an interesting rule and I, I should have I, you know it's Twitter so you don't get to, you don't get to lay down the rules that specifically but so the the, the 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 rule is a movie whose logo as a movie so on the poster or the majority of marketing materials exists in the world of the film but also stands for the same thing as the film. So a lot of people were giving me logos that exist in the film, like the Mockingjay pin from Hunger Games. But that Mockingjay pin does not symbolize Hunger Games in it. It symbolizes the Mockingjay. Right. It symbolizes Uh, resistance. Right. And like the Blair Witch Project, like tree stick man thing, that doesn't symbolize the Blair Witch Project. So um, there were a lot of interesting uh, suggestions from people. I think Cheers is probably my favorite. Um, but it also just, you know, made me think about brands and movies, those brands. Oh,
1: we like thinking about brands here. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's interesting, right? Is that like a more of an old school branding thing for movies? Was were you finding that more older things had, um, that sort of like brand yeah, synchronicity? I think, uh, you know, Jurassic Park is the big one and superhero movies,
0: obviously too. Um, but you know, it's also kind of harks back to this age of movies where you know Huey Lewis and the News are doing a theme song that has the name of the movie in it. It's like this whole tied-in experience of you know the logo and song with the the song about the movie and a, probably a music video like uh like the the Will Smith music video for. Uh, Men in Black. Oh, oh I was Wild, thinking of Wild, Wild Wild West.
1: Wild, Wild West. <laughs> that music video did so much better than the movie.
0: <laughs> Wild Wild West. Uh, no, I mean, all these, all these little experiences that are tied into getting, getting the themes and the overall brand of the film into your head uh, through whatever avenues are available. Um, and yeah, I, I wrote a story, a short story on the
1: verge that About went up over a, the weekend. A disturbing new way to get brands into your head, so to speak.
0: I, I think I wrote as a tagline for it, the most extreme brand activation ever. <laughs> um which I won't I won't spoil I guess, although spoilers, as we've learned, aren't really the point. Um but um yeah, I mean I've I I think I've started my my obsession with brands probably at last that this year South by Southwest and you also had an interesting South by Southwest brand experience. It just seems like the place to have a brand experience if you're oh, going to have
1: I, one. I, I can't. Yeah, I mean, so um, a couple of years ago, uh, I went to South by Southwest. Um, or I went to visit, actually, the David Foster Wallace Archive, because I'm that person somehow. <laughs> uh, uh, and it was I timed it up so that I could go to the South by Southwest Music Festival. And so I was really very primed to notice all the sponsorship. Um, and I didn't have a pass to the festival itself, but there are a lot of free ancillary events. Um, like, there was one that I went to that was, like, an NPR event. And, like... Mm-hmm. Um, they were passing out like free Pab's blue ribbon and like you know brand activation, brand activation, brand mm-hmm. brand activation. Um, and I ended up writing about that whole experience for the Kenyan Review um, a couple of years ago. And I was realizing actually after having read your story that there's like a little weird kicker on this thing that I had written a couple of years ago that I wouldn't have been able to notice or write at the time. Um, which is that David Foster Wallace himself has now become a brand, and it's a brand based on that Kenyan speech. Um, right. It's being reinforced by, like, that movie this summer. Um, right, end yeah, of the tour. End of the tour, um, which is, of course, based on, of course, you end up becoming yourself, um, which was released almost immediately after he died. Um, yeah. And, like, one of the things about that book, there are a lot of things about that book and that movie that are peculiar, but uh, one of the things that struck me is that like you see Wallace like if you're familiar with his biography um, d t. Max published it uh, three years ago now, I think mm-hmm. um, if you're familiar with his biography, you see him constructing his brand to a credulous Lipsky um, right, you know you see and like and that's that is now precisely what he is known for is this sort of warm hearted, aw shucks, midwesterner when in fact like the writing and the actual biography suggest that he was weirder and darker and had more sharp edges than that. Um, but you know, now that's what he's known for is, uh, uh this is water, the Kenyan speech, which was right. then, you know, sold as a book with pictures. Um, and like the, the bit that I focused on was something that was omitted from the published speeches, but that I heard when I was at the speech, um, about suicide, which I understand why you might omit that uh, following a death by suicide, but I wanted to check and see if it was still there, if, it, if I had made this up, and I hadn't. Um, it's in the audio recordings, and you also see it in his drafts. Um, so yeah, it was—it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that I've been thinking about, not just in terms of like companies, but also in terms of people, because I mean. There's all this talk about oh you're a personal brand. What is your brand? Um, Right. You know, it's very on brand for you.
0: Yeah, it's something. I mean, we were talking a little bit before this, and I think in many ways a brand, in the most abstract sense, is a way to not have to think about things. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's a it's a shorthand. uh, It's a symbol. You know, the actual. You know, whether you're talking about actual logo itself or thinking about. David Foster Wallace as an idea, as, as something you can encapsul- encapsulate into a sentence. I think this is something that kind of irritates me, especially when it comes to things like the first thing that pops in my head is like uh, David Lynch movies, for example, which I think are so, I mean, I love David Lynch and I love like Twin Peaks and that kind of thing. And I like, I like them because they feel so many parts of them feel unknowable and I like how you know just not they aren't one thing that is sort of ambiguous a lot of times what's going on and up for interpretation based on your mood or how you're feeling that how you're feeling that week and when it's sort of the same as memeing you know memifying things when when it all becomes about you know the man from another place or you know lol these these memorable gifts from from twin peaks i feel like it it It's a way of ending a conversation, in a way. Um, And I'm talking in the most abstract, broad sense
2: of... uh,
1: No, but I think you're hitting on something when you say that it's, like, not... It's something that's not meant to inspire thought. And, like, when we were talking earlier, um, what I mentioned um, was uh, Homer's epithets. So, like, every time Achilles is described, he's swift-footed Achilles, you know? You get the rosy-fingered Dawn... Um, You get everlasting glory or undying fame. Uh, You get men referred to as shining or divine. Um, Women are often white-armed or lovely-haired, you know. Mm -hmm. And these are things that you, um, uh, you know, this used to be, of course, an uh, an epic poem that people sang. And so you had to remember uh, these descriptions. And these were sort of these rote descriptions that you could plug in um, whenever you were talking about a specific character without having to tax your memory any further. So, you know, like, in some sense, like, Brands have been with us for quite some time,
0: Homer, the original marketing exec. But I mean, that's but it, I mean, in that way, sometimes you know, it can be useful to have a shorthand where you're you don't you don't necessarily the priorities on not necessarily on thinking about oh who is who is Apollo or or somebody in this situation. Uh, you actually want to think about what they're doing or what the situation is, and not necessarily who they are and the depth and complexity of their persona. Like, it's just that guy. Like, for these purposes in this this instant, we are talking about that guy. Um, But then, you know, I I think that that can tend to get overused, especially, you know, there wasn't nearly as much going on as far as information and entertainment being poured into people's heads uh, in Homer's time. And now we need that kind of shorthand more than ever just to be able to get through you know, reams and reams of tweets and uh think pieces yeah. going into our head every day.
1: And like even I I kind of think of brands um even when they're not like, you know, companies as being sort of like the advertising for a person or for a book right. or for whatever it is. It's like a headline on an article almost.
0: Right. And and it's and it's sort of a promise in a way too. Uh, it's a it's a a promise of something that's going to be fulfilled. Um Especially when you're talking about being a brand the way that somebody who's an online personality is a brand. Like you will come here for this product from me and I will give it to you. And if I don't, that is a failing on my, on my part as far as this unspoken business agreement that we've agreed to because you're following my channel on such and such a platform. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got something to do with the commodification of personality as well, right? Like, to go back to Wallace, like, he is in some sense now a commodity. Um, You see people writing memoirs um, about having known him, uh, publishing, you know, publishing correspondence. You've got people like me who are, like, ghoulishly going through his archives and his papers. Uh Like, there is, is, you know, almost a, a, a trade being made out of him.
0: Yeah, it's something you can pin to yourself to further amplify your own brand. Brands on brands. Oh. Um, but yeah, I thought, I mean, I people can read the story if they want to. Uh, I, I thought I had some interesting conversations before I put it up because there was sort of the worry that he might just, the, the, the main guy in the story might seem like he's just a brand ambassador, um, like, you know, these kinds of people who are who get sent to concerts. Um, I'm living to, the Red Bull life. Yeah, I'm living the Red Bull life and, like, look how cool I am, but I'm also holding a Red Bull. So if you got a Red Bull, I could look, you could look like me. I'm the um, Duff Beer
1: Man. Hey. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and uh but you know that that it's one step further than that it, uh is being not just being a, a person who has hours in that way of like, oh, now I'm doing this job where I go to the show and I'm an uh, ambassador. or Like there's a word for them that's really creepy. I forget what it is for when you're supposed to go and hang out somewhere and look cool, um, <laughs> which is the best job ever. Like, I mean, it's terrible. Like you, you, you will feel like scum, I'm sure, if you do that job. But it's an incredible job. Uh, <laughs> but I can't remember what the name of it is right now. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know it I, I continue to I feel like I feel like uh, there's there, there's a there's an uh, sorry I didn't want to get into this tangent but we'll probably talk about this later this this article about uh, Um, the creative apocalypse that wasn't but so much of 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 the the revenue that goes into art and everything now is informed by a brand of some sort yeah uh,
1: very frequently corporate brands yeah um, uh, and people have strong feelings about brands too. I am about to segue, um, but <laughs> just FYI, everyone, do it. Um, but one of the um, one of the things that I was watching was like how strongly people felt about the two NASA logos. So NASA's had two logos. One of them is called the snake. Uh, that was the one um, that it was. I think that it originally had, and then the other is the meatball, which is the familiar one. That's um, you know the the blue ball with the sort of the, the comet coming through and the NASA logo. And uh there was a Kickstarter to get a coffee table book going with of the old design specs for the old logo because it's you know they're not just putting the logo on a computer, they're putting it on jumpsuits. They're putting it on like all of their equipment. And so right. here's how it's supposed to look. And um I was I mean and NASA as soon as they saw the Kickstarter just released uh, the PDFs, so if people want to, like, print them out and staple them together instead of paying for a uh, glossy copy table book, they can do that. Um, but what I, what I was surprised by how many people who hadn't been alive for this original brand were really interested in it and, like, had this emotional attachment to the, the snake logo. Hmm. I, I, don't, I don't have any thoughts about why that might be. I was just surprised by it, um, yeah. the emotional response that it evoked.
0: I guess I'm trying to think because I, I didn't even think about them being different for some reason. For some reason, they both were one logo in my mind, even though I know I'm looking it up up right now on Google Image. I had a patch when I was a kid of the snake logo. So I guess that was the one I feel like I had a more tactile relationship to. But when you watch a movie or see, you know, uh, a central command or whatever, and, and everybody's, you know, uh, having their little NASA patches or whatever, they look like the meatball one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean I, I don't know when that changed cuz I remember um growing up I had a NASA Ames Research Center tank top that I basically wore until it was see-through <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it also
1: had the snake logo on it. Huh. Yeah, I
0: mean I think I think for me if I had to just pull something out right now it's just that the 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 Meatball logo looks like something from the past. Like it looks very retro. Uh and I remember thinking that the NASA logo that I had on my patch was cool because it looked like something for a job you could still have. Um, And it was like very contemporary or futuristic. Um, And I could imagine myself being in Starfleet or something and having a patch like that. Yeah, it was like... I was more into Starfleet, to be honest, than NASA, (laughs) but
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, so from from there, I I should mention that NASA has been um, releasing more Pluto photos. Um, yeah. So we have the first clear image of um, Pluto's moon Nix, which wasn't actually discovered um, until t- about 2005 um, via the Hubble Space Telescope, and it looks like a weird little jelly bean.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, it's really small; it's like 26 miles by 22 miles or something.
0: Wow, oh. is there something? Does something have to be a size, to, certain size, to be a moon, or does it just have to orbit a planet?
1: That is actually I a mean, good but question. But not really. A,
0: but Pluto isn't a planet, so what is it orbiting? Just another body.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I. don't know. I feel like moon is is used really loosely for orbiting bodies. Hmm. Um, but I could be mistaken. Like Pluto's moons are unusual in that uh, a lot of them keep a really irregular cycle because the gravitational pull is um, pretty weak, uh, right? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, they're not being pulled as strongly by the sun, but like they're not like mm. tidally locked in the way that like the the Earth's moon is. You know. Like. Right. Right. Um, which is just going the same way every single time. Um, mm-hmm. So they're, they're a little bit more scattershot. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, these, 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 um, these new images are really cool. They're high-res, and uh, they released a mosaic that you can piece together into a very beautiful black-and-white uh, high-res photo of uh, Pluto, which, you know, nice to look at. We have it on the site. So that, the New Horizons mission, it's, 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 continue,
0: it's still leaving the system and everything right now. Yeah. Uh, is it is there anything else that it's expected to get images of? Uh, like, well, you know, so this is or? a
1: this is a question. Um, they're prepping for a possible mission um, past past Pluto. Uh, but it's not clear the funding will happen. But they have to do the prepping now in order to make sure that they have enough fuel to actually do the thing they want to do if they get approved. Mm. Um, so there may be there may be more information coming. Um from from New Horizons um cool yeah uh it's it's super cool and you keep in mind that the computer powering this this amazing thing is the same computer that was like basically in an xbox (laughs) that's the best detail I love that (laughs) it's so crazy to me um so we want to uh
0: we wanted to bring on our, our our guest or bring on I guess I mean He's already been brought on, strictly temporarily speaking. But um, um, just by way of intro, I, th- I thought we would um, just talk a little bit about the book that he wrote and what it deals with in, in, in terms of autism and, yeah. and science. and yeah. Well,
1: so this is actually a really great piece of science history if you're wondering why all of a sudden autism diagnoses spiked. Hmm. Um, because it takes you through uh, the, ta- it's almost a tale of two scientists. Um, and one of them is a scientist, uh, named Asperger, um, Hans Asperger, who is German. Mm-hmm. And the other is Leo Kanner, um, or I should say Connor, um, is how he pronounces it. Uh, and he is, U uh, S based, although he is also a European immigrant. Um, and so essentially, um, Asperger figured out, what we now take for granted, the autism spectrum, uh, pre-World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and because basically of that cataclysm, a lot of his work was either lost or forgotten about. And meanwhile, um, on the other side of the Atlantic, um, Leo Conner created a much more narrow definition for autism that excluded a lot of people who we would consider to be on the spectrum. Right. Um, and so for a long time, autism diagnosis rates were very, very low because the diagnosis criteria were so strict. But these other uh, scientists were seeing signs that, you know, what Connor was describing, what Asperger had described, and some of the uh, patients that they were seeing who had developmental disorders, but weren't like um, necessarily intellectually disordered, or who had trouble speaking and tended to do sort of Repetitive flapping motions. This is often called stimming.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, also, sometimes had these tremendous talents, um, and so it's um, kind of the history of of autism as we know it, almost a biography of the condition. And uh, one of the things that Silberman does is he points out um, groups of people. He's careful not to retrodiagnose. Um, himself. (laughs) Uh, If somebody else has done so, he'll note that, um, or he'll say, well, this person looks like they might have had some features, but who can know without a direct diagnosis? Um, But he will point out individuals who would fit the criteria who have been among us for a very long time, um, including some historical figures like Henry Cavendish, the scientist. Hmm. So it's a nice um, corrective to some of the hype around the autism epidemic. Um, particularly because one of the things that i think people have a hard time wrapping their head around um is that often these kids didn't get a diagnosis uh because the because connor had basically created such a narrow definition that they couldn't possibly meet it even though they were autistic and did need those those services
0: right and it's also uh i mean i feel like the idea of stigmatization or or being seen as a as a you know what what people would consider a disability
1: is 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 really out the window at this point too, right um, yeah, I mean like the 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 movement now, and this is um primarily um coming actually from autistic people themselves who have yeah. now begun to uh self advocate it's called um, you know they're trying to steer away from this notion of curing autism and towards something like uh, neurodiversity, which is what Silberman is flicking at with his title. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that, you know, like people like Temple Grandin, for example, you know, they don't may not function very well in an environment where I function very well. But if you give them the right environment, uh, they function exceptionally well. Right. And like creating a certain amount of tolerance um, for people who are non-neurotypical uh, as well as creating spaces where they can excel is a big part of that.
0: It seems like there's a lot of diversity around what... Did, like what what are the kind of common characteristics around autism and aspergers it does seem like there's sort of a a um a a, a pull towards systems towards you know, especially pr- professions in the sciences and engineering um is that is there any clear evidence for why that is or or how
1: actually prevalent that is um not that i have seen, although it is a pretty common feature that's described by a lot of people. In fact, um, Asperger, uh, when he was initially um, studying his patients, wrote that they were um, obsessed with fantasies like rockets going into space. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after we actually did send people into space, he wondered if uh, all of the engineers involved were autistic. (laughs) (laughs) So there is, you know, and like Cavendish, for example, was a really remarkable scientist who had a very tough time interacting with his colleagues. And so what they would do is they would talk near him
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, without making eye contact or acknowledging him in any way. And if they said something he liked, all of a sudden he would jump into the conversation, again, not making eye contact or addressing anybody in particular, but participating. And so that was sort of how they got around um, the fact that he was apparently a very, very shy man.
0: Right and then in that in a case of somebody like him where he's you know a prof- in in a profession and is respected in his profession there's a there's a a reason to try to work around him and try to find the ways to with which to access his ideas and yeah, like, the, to approach his talents. Him. and i feel like that's probably not always the case though with a lot of people who who uh, do have autism Uh, or are on the spectrum, that people are not necessarily always trying to find ways to access their talents.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, like, part of the reason for the big parental push into um, creating more resources for special ed and, um, you know, essentially trying to reform the way that autism had been treated for a long time, which was just to institutionalize um, a lot of these kids, which was horrific often. Um, Yeah. So... Yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about science, science fiction, and autism. Cool. Well, so welcome, uh, Steve, to, um, to Verge ESP. Um, and uh, we're, we're here today to talk about your book, which I actually um, have right here with me. Um, it's called Neuro Tribes, the Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Um, and, uh, you know, I love science history, so I was pleasantly surprised to discover how much there was in it, and I was hoping, um, I could sort of start you off talking a little bit about, uh, the unexpected role that, um, science fiction and ham radio have to play in the book. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, how that, how those sort of sections came together and how that, um, fit in with the larger theme of what you were writing?
2: Sure. Um... Well, one of the main themes of the book is how the different uh, framings of autism by the two men who are considered the pioneers of the field, uh, Hans Asperger and Leo Conner, affected later generations of autistic people. Um, Asperger, as I reveal in the book, uh, in the 1930s in Vienna, discovered what we would now call the autism spectrum. So a very, very broad range of people uh, uh, of all ages, really, although he was working mostly with children. He followed his patients long enough to watch them grow up. And, for instance, one of his uh, very autistic uh, young patients ended up going to graduate school, um, detecting an error in one of Isaac Newton's proofs, and then becoming an assistant professor of astronomy. So uh, Asperger had a, a sense that Autism was a lifelong condition, and that there was a, an arc of development um, at the pace of at, at the particular pace of an autistic person, so that right. you couldn't measure the milestones of the growth of an autistic person against the milestones of the growth of a typical person. But they had their own way of learning and their own way of maturing. And Asper and his colleagues saw their jobs as figuring out what the best way to teach. Uh, Autistic people are because their clinic was not just a clinic where parents would bring their kids for evaluation, it was like a school as well. And in fact, the the clinicians lived with the children. So, um, really, Asperger was trying to set his young patients up for success in life and for a meaningful role in society. Connor. He
1: took a very different view than Connor, right? Like, Connor's thing was. Not quite as holistic, I guess, maybe as a way of putting it. Is that fair?
2: Well, yeah. Here's the thing. Um, I find it, like, even though Connor ended up making decisions that um, had a terrible effect on autistic people and their families, um, Connor's job was was rather different than Asperger's. Connor was one of the first child psychiatrists in America. Like, people kind of forget that that field was relatively new. Um, and so he was trying to establish uh, child psychiatry as a an empirically valid field of science. And so in autism, he uh, saw the outlines of what he considered the first form of psychosis that was endemic to childhood. And uh, if there was a form of psychosis that was, you know, it would manifest in the early years of infancy then that gave child psychiatrists a kind of invaluable role. Uh, And Connor would eventually develop the theory that um, autism was triggered by bad parenting and so-called refrigerator mothers and and such. And so that, in a sense, put child psychiatrists in a role almost above the parents in terms of uh, determining what the best way to bring up a child uh, who was facing challenges was. So... Connor defined autism very narrowly, uh, in part so that his colleagues would accept it as a valid and sort of crisply defined diagnosis. Like the idea of a spectrum that sort of shades off into uh, mere eccentricity and kind of includes everyone, you know, which is sort of like the, our <laughs> concept now, you know, like if Jerry Seinfeld is on the spectrum, then who isn't, you know? And, yeah. you know, Seinfeld you know, just a few months ago saw a curious incident of the dog in the nighttime on Broadway and decided that he was on the spectrum for a couple of days or something, you know. So that, you know, would not have flown with with, uh, Connors, that kind of vague definition would not have flown, but it turned out to be a more accurate description of what autism is like than what connor came up with which was this very rare form of childhood psychosis so this may seem like the long way around to to get to an answer to your question but here's the thing what the the seed of the chapter that i call princes of the air which was about ham radio and science fiction was asking the question okay so asperger discovers the spectrum in the 1930s then connor discovers this very narrowly defined monolithic condition that he calls early infantile autism. Uh, uh, he writes about it in the early 1940s. So my question was, what were all those people who we would now say are on the spectrum, what were they doing during the decades when they were invisible to medicine? Because, you know, Asperger had seen them. He saw them as almost a, a sort of a natural life form Um or a tribe, uh, you know, as I, I, like, that's what the word neurotribes really means, that uh, Asperger kind of saw the outlines of a huge group of people because he believed that the traits of autism were extremely common. So what, what was this huge group of people for whom there was no label or an endless series of labels? You know, it's like before the early 1940s, there was no label in psychiatry for these people, Although there were a couple of attempts, like a Russian psychiatrist in the twenties, uh, studied in, uh, a group of um, teenagers who we would now look at as classic cases of Asperger syndrome, but that wasn't that label wasn't invented till the eighties. So you know, she described them in the twenties. Her name was Grunya Sukareva, and she described them in the twenties as having like a schizotypal disorder. You know, so it, by the fifties there was this. Label called childhood schizophrenia, which really described what we would now call the rest of the spectrum that was left out of Leo Connor's kind of very small walled garden of patients that he was willing to give the early autism or early infantile autism label to. Um, so you know, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, there was like an epidemic of childhood schizophrenia in state schools and and um, on psych wards, really, like in Bellevue. Uh, Boy, that
1: sounds familiar. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so, you know, to me, the childhood schizophrenia epidemic is like an eerie foreshadowing of the alleged autism epidemic that, you know, exploded in the 1990s once, um, as I describe in the book, once Connor's narrow conception of autism was, you know, quietly swapped out for Asperger's uh, spectrum model. Um, And so, you know, suddenly all these people could get diagnoses. Um, It looks like an epidemic. Parents are understandably concerned. Anyway, so before we even get to that, um, I wanted to know, okay, what were all these people doing? And, you know, Asperger had noticed that the kids in his clinic were fascinated by technology. Uh, One of the kids in his clinic ended up apprenticing with a watchmaker uh he would actually get you know sort of chased down the street by bullies and this kid like took refuge in the shop of an old watchmaker and became his apprentice and you know if you read through um not just uh the clinical literature of autism but autobiographical writings by autistic people you see that that many of them have kind of fascination with complex machines and um in fact uh you know, that it's, it's it runs like a, a red thread through entire autism history. Like, even those kids with childhood schizophrenia that were um, uh, housed in a place called Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute, which is three blocks away from where I'm sitting in San Francisco, um, you know, like, one of the boys in, in that uh, institution was obsessed with taking apart the toilet, you know? So it's <laughs> like, so basically, like, You know, there's some subset of autistic people who are fascinated by complex machines, love to take them apart, put them together. Um, Also, uh, even Asperger, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s, noticed that the kids in his clinic were fascinated by science fiction. And so... space. Yeah, and so he says, you know, at some point in his early writings, he says, um, you know, the autistic fascination with rocket ships shows how distant from daily reality autistic interests truly are. Well, you know, (laughs) uh, he ended up eating those words because, like, ten years later, the whole world was obsessed with rocket ships. And and so, you know, he ended up uh, saying, uh, making the very, I must say, postmodern, astute comment, perhaps the designers of rocket ships themselves are autistic. And, you know, if you, if you believe Temple Grandin, uh, you know, she's, she describes NASA as like the biggest sheltered workshop in the world um, because she has met so many people who, who she believes are either on the spectrum or have autistic traits at mm-hmm. NASA. And so one of the things, I was, you know, one of the problems with autism books in general, from my perspective, you know, as I was thinking about writing this book, was that they would only tend to look at autism through a single lens. So it was like, okay, the medical lens, in which case everything that autistic people do and love is some expression of their alleged disorder, you know? So it's like the clinical literature of autism is surely the only place on earth where you can read about preschoolers who are fascinated by geometry, dinosaurs, and the weather described as mentally ill. <laughs> you know? So um, I wanted to get away from you know the strictly medicalized pathologizing lens of traditional clinical literature about autism. Um, But I also wanted to, you know, not only examine autistic people through the eyes of parents, because parents have a very difficult time uh, raising autistic children, particularly in a society that does not offer them adequate support and resources. So... um, You know, a lot of books about autism have been written by parents. And then there's, you know, thankfully a new generation of writings by autistic people themselves who are um, challenging the stereotypes about them and taking ownership of their own stories. So that's great too, but I am none of those categories. I'm not a clinician, I'm not a parent, and I'm not autistic. I'm a boring neurotypical science journalist. So um, I tried to write a very non-boring um, uh, book that included, you know, parts of all these perspectives, but also claimed a perspective of my own. And so anyway, so what were people with autistic traits and people who we would now say are on the spectrum doing, like for most of the 20th century, when they were invisible to medicine, either before Connor and Asperger's discoveries or afterwards but, you know, maybe they weren't diagnosable. Um, certainly under Conner's narrow model of autism, which prevailed for decades, they could not get a diagnosis. They would, you know, not have been aware of the fact that they were autistic. It would have seemed absurd to most adults to, you know, do I have early infantile autism? No, <laughs> you know, it's a, it was defined as a, as a children's disorder. So um, what were they doing? Well, it turns out that some of them, And obviously I'm not talking about um, the people who were primarily nonverbal and needed constant uh, support and care, of which there were many, and they ended up in institutions being being brutalized, you know, systematically. And often
1: having their lives cut short in the process. Right,
2: exactly. And so, you know, like people say, well, where were all the autistic people when I was growing up? Well, you know... uh, some of them were on wards for adult psychotics or uh, adult retardates, as they were called. I mean, that's, you know, now a very cruel sounding phrase. The, uh, the phrase is the preferred formulation is intellectual disability. But, you know, it's not like there were autism wards, you know, in, in most state hospitals. So the, these these children, because they were generally put in institutions when they were children, um were, you know, just sort of dumped there for the rest of their lives. You know, Leo Connor eventually admitted that, that going to an institution was a life sentence, really. And, the, you know, unsurprisingly, they did not do well. You know, even the special skills, the so-called savant skills of autistic people faded in such grim, you know, and br- brutal settings. But, okay, so what about all the people with Asperger's syndrome? What about the people who love Dan Harmon's community right now, you know? What about the people who go to Dr. Who conventions? What about all those people who are somewhere between um, you know, fanboys and fangirls and uh fascinatingly obsessed geeks uh and people who deserve a diagnosis of Asperger syndrome or, you know, it, that's now been folded into the broader Uh, autism spectrum disorder umbrella, but what about those people? Well, it turns out that a guy named Hugo Gernsback, um, in the very first years of the 20th century, um, created two communities that were natural homes for them. And not surprisingly, Gernsback himself had many autistic traits, and his biographer, Gary Westfall, who is one of the most prominent uh, historians of science fiction, believes that Gernsback himself would have been diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome eventually. Uh, he was very, you know, he, he he had a sort of classic Aspie um, background. When he was a kid, he was fascinated with electricity and, and, uh, and complex machines, and he like wired a local convent with an intercom system, you know, at a time when even, you know, rich people's houses did not have intercoms. And, in fact, the mother superior had to get him a special papal dispensation uh, for him to be able to come and keep the intercom system at the convent in working order. You know, so, he, so Gernsback was like a, a young little genius. And then when he was, um, when he was still a kid, he read a, uh, a book by an astronomer uh, titled Mars as the Abode of Life. And it was a charming book, but it was also, you know, wrong in that it, it predicted that eventually we would discover that the canals on Mars were actually canals and that, you know, they would, uh, the Martians would migrate to the poles when it got hot, you know, and they, they developed a communication system. Anyway, not exactly true, but boy, was it ever a great book to put the seeds of um, fantasy and science fiction into the fevered brain of young Hugo Gernsback and in fact fevered literally apparently like the book you know sent him into a into a, a, a spasm like he, for 3 days he was like hallucinating <laughs> about martians and whatnot so anyway he ended up coming up with an idea for well coming up with several ideas one of them was for a new genre of popular literature that he wanted to call scientific. fiction. Um, well The label fiction" didn't quite catch on, you know, but something very close to it did, science fiction. And so Hugo Gernsback became, like, the leading entrepreneur of what we now call pulp science fiction. And so he had a whole fleet of magazines that, you know, you would buy in corner drugstores with names like, you know, Amazing Wonder Stories, and, you know, et cetera. And, you know, in some ways they were very limited, uh, you know, it's a limited genre. Like, you know, the roles for women, shall we say, were not good, you know. Um, women authors... I am just
1: shocked to hear this. What Roles for women not being good in the 60s? Who's right, exactly.
2: Good? Well, I mean, we're even talking about like the 40s at this point. Oh, right?
1: yeah, wow. You know?
2: So, you know, as I say in the book, women existed usually as hapless props to be rescued, you know. Yeah. It, it seemed like the most, the most um, uh, popular form of cover for, you know, Gernsback magazines was like, you know, a screaming blonde, like in the many tentacled arms of Cthulhu, you know, or something. I mean, I
1: know that's how I spend my Saturdays. Right, exactly,
2: exactly. So, you know, so, so Gernsback created this genre, which not surprisingly, you know, proved to be um, completely fascinating to young um, people with what we would, you know, now call Asperger syndrome young uh, undiagnosed Aspergians, shall we say. Uh, and I got to look at that phenomenon through two different lenses, which was that I, I looked at Gernsback through the lens of science fiction history. But then, like, I kept noticing that in case studies of, uh, you know, young people with this mysterious condition, like, is it is it infanti- Connor's infantile autism, but at a later stage of life? Like, for like these people didn't just disappear because Connor wouldn't give them a diagnosis you know right. so so they would end up you know in in you know like regional centers or whatever and they would be called like children with circumscribed interests you know well it turned out that they loved science fiction you know and there was there was a kid named uh, that his psychiatrist named Tommy the Space Child who oh, got
1: Yeah Tommy's great.
2: He's awesome. He's awesome. And you know what I what I sort of love is that in these endless reports, you know, like the cl- clinicians always think that they're coming off like the smart person in the room. But it's like, there's, a, there's, there's, uh, there are moments like when one of the kids that I write about, um, you know, asked his psychiatrist, like, do you even know the names of the nine planets, you know, or whatever? Like, it's obvious that the kid knows more about science than the clinician does. And the clinician, meanwhile, is interpreting his interest in science as pathological, you know. So, so anyway, so Gernsback had a genius idea, uh, which was to launch Wired, basically, more or less, in the, in, you know, in the, in the teens, uh, except he called it Modern Electrics. And it was um, the, the first magazine for home electronics hobbyists, and uh, it even had a slogan that it was something like electronics for the rest of us or something like I, I, figured, I wow. forget exactly what it was, but it's in the book. <laughs> but um, it was, ve- it was very pressing because it was basically like the first magazine for cool geeks, you know, it's like before that there was, you know, inventors quarterly or something, which would, you know, have like news for the patent office, but it's like, you know, what, what, you know, 15 year old boy or girl is going to dig that, you know, so um, with modern electrics, um, Gernsbach had the genius idea of, like, okay, if you buy my ham radio equipment, and he popularized the first affordable uh, equipment for amateur radio that you could use at home and, you know, build easily kits, basically. Um, so if you have, you know, he told his readers, if you have a really cool home radio rig, Get a picture of it and send it in and, you know, you'll be the geek of the month, more or less, or whatever, or I I think Modern Electrics was a quarterly, but anyway, so what that did was it made the community as much of the subject of the magazine as the gadgets, and it made uh, home electronics and amateur radio seem cool, and so geeks flocked to it, young geeks, you know, and this was like the first generation of, you know, what we would now think of as cool nerds you know i mean there might have been people like doing interesting stuff with drainage systems or something you know in the in the 19th century I um, actually did discover a description of you know what seemed to be an autistic person who was became an expert on drainage systems in the 19th wow. century but basically once you know once Hugo Gernsback um, popularized home electronics people with autistic traits flocked to it and they also flocked to his his science fiction magazines.
1: Yeah, amazing stories. You you mention in the book um, that the letters column in Amazing Stories was often much better than anything else happening in the magazine. Right, it was like
2: better, right, right there was more, you know, just in-depth discussion of Einstein's theory of relativity or whatever, or quantum physics. And yeah, so, you know, when we think of like the whole universe of Trekkers and Hoovians and Uh, you know, uh, Harmonians, the Dan Harmon fans, or whatever. Like, all that stuff, in other words, fandom with a capital F, really begins in the back pages of Hugo Gernsback's magazines. And, you know, he himself was a very odd odd guy. And he had a secret weapon, um, who was Nikola Tesla. Uh, and Nikola Tesla, you know, some people have accused me of retro-diagnosing Nikola Tesla with autism. I wouldn't dare, and in fact, any of the people who I retro like Gernsback and like Henry Cavendish in the first chapter, there's always some higher authority uh, who has done the retrodiagnosis before I even talk about it. But um, Tesla, whatever he was, he was not neurotypical. <laughs> you know, he had a lot of autistic traits. He had a lot of traits from probably, you know, a hundred other conditions. He was a very bizarre and brilliant and and weird in the best way guy, you know. And basically, between Tesla and Gernsback, they teamed up and imagined the future a hundred years before it happened. So they were writing about, um, you know, everything from a scheme they called typewriting by wire, which is basically the internet, to like online news services, online dating services, computer dating—like this—is like before most people had ever even heard of computers, you know. And one of one of the hilarious anecdotes, one of my favorite anecdotes in the book, actually, is um, Hugo Grunsbach talking to his young niece, who's like, you know, still in uh, elementary school or whatever. And this is like in the—it's in the teens or twenties—and he's telling her. Uh, Hermione, or whatever, uh, fix your hair. Someday, we will be able to see you over the wires, you know, if you, like, make a phone call. <laughs> and so, he was basically predicting Skype while there were still horses and buggies, like, you know, plodding the street outside. Um, so, they really invented the future in their, in their ma- you know, in Gernsback's magazines. And uh, people with autistic traits and... You know, people who would later be able to get a diagnosis uh, flocked to both ham radio and science fiction as a community that um, they could belong to purely on the basis of their the intensity of their fascination for the minutiae of the field. So, in other words, they were the first fandoms. No one could kick you out. Like you know, you would you would you wouldn't be bullied by other geeks, you know, really. Um, these were people who, you know, as still tragically happens. People with autistic traits are, are, you know, bullied their whole lives really. And certainly in elementary school. So suddenly there were, you know, there were like clubs, like the science ears. And, you know, there were clubs all over America. One of the first science fiction clubs was, um, launched by an African American in New York city. And, uh, you know, so outsiders of all kinds collected in science fiction clubs. One of the, one of the early science fiction fans was the guy who became the leading gay um, historian uh, uh, of his of his era, the kind of fifties era. And um, there were disabled people uh, involved, and physically disabled. Um, so they basically became. So the science fiction community and the ham radio community basically became havens for people who were outsiders everywhere else in their life, and it offered them a chance to learn useful skills that they could actually turn into jobs, particularly ham radio. Science fiction, maybe not so much, you know, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but ham radio. And um, so, and you know, I I tell a story of this amazing. Um, Story written by a writer named A.E. Van Vogt, uh, who was, uh, I believe, a defense analyst, uh, called Slan, which was one of the first stories in which the aliens, in a sense, who were a, a group of genetically engineered humans, sort of genetically upgraded humans, were the heroes rather than the you know the normal people being the heroes? Yeah, and like the
1: proto X Men almost. Yeah, exactly. People really responded to that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, science fiction fans became obsessed with slam, and you know there was one guy who you know claimed to be organizing cosmic camps all over the country. <laughs> you know, fans are slams was his rallying cry. So, you know, they were already like seeing themselves as genetic, you know, genetic mutants but with special skills and gifts, you know, very much like X-Men. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, it is true that um, my science fiction chapter may seem like a diversion. You know, it's like, why isn't he still focusing on the clinics, you know? But I, I also felt that, particularly after the Holocaust, the account of the Holocaust in my book, um, and, you know, Connor's um, blaming of parents, you know, for causing autism, I felt like readers would probably want to hear about, um, something more fun, <laughs> you know? Well, not
1: just something more fun, but also, I mean, to me, one of the things that has made a tremendous difference in the way that we talk about autism are communities of autistic people who self-advocate, um, you know, uh, huge. Obviously this is not everybody who has autism, not everybody's verbal, but being able to say, you know, this is, this is my experience. This is what it's like. Here's an environment that will suit me. Um, and, and seeing sort of the, the proto stages of that community, um, was really fascinating.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and you know, it's important. You just said, you know, not everyone is verbal. It's also important to Register the fact that not every self-advocate is verbal either. You know, it's like there are people like Amy Sequenzia who are nonverbal in that they don't speak, but they can type. And there's a wonderful um, anthology of writing by people who are you know, are, you know generally called nonverbal um, called, uh, well, there are a couple of them. One is called Typed Words, Loud Voices. And the other is called Loud Hands, Autistic People Speaking. And so, you know, I think there's a... Like, I understand that some autistic people are much more um, disabled or impaired. Uh, There are ways of mediating some of that impairment, like by developing appropriate communication devices, that, you know, that's where I think we should be putting our money, not necessarily in finding another 500 candidate genes for autism. But uh, it's important that the self-advocate community not get stereotyped as, oh, those are just all the, you know, the cool kids with Asperger's syndrome or something, you know, because organizations like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network are, are not only fighting for but winning changes in federal public policy that will benefit all people on the spectrum, even the, the people who are routinely written off as, quote-unquote, low-functioning.
1: Yeah. Well, um, on that sort of note of hope, um, I, I think I think maybe we can end things here. Great, um, Steve. Thank you so much for for agreeing to speak. I really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It's really an honor to talk to you.
1: Oh, thank you. So I'd like to thank Steve Silverman, our guest today. He is the author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. If what he had to say spoke to you, I suggest going to pick up that book at your local bookseller.
0: Bookstore- um, and that is it for us this week. We will be back two weeks from now with more ESP. And uh, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to us on iTunes, whatever it is your preferred listening method of choice, and leave a review for us on iTunes. We would love your feedback, especially if it's good feedback. <laughs> um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Emily Oshida. And Liz,
1: you are at, at MS Lapato. that's right. Um, um, I feel like I should also just tell you all The Verge is hiring. You should check out our jobs listings if this seems like something you would be interested in doing. We are Gina always looking does. for talent. Um, and that will
0: be it for us this week.
1: Have a great week, everybody. Our show was produced by Jorge Corona and by a tiny mouse we taught to edit audio.